I'll give an example. Like maybe someone writes a blog, right? They went to a march, right? Black Lives Matter march. White person talking about their experience at a black march. The story is now about them when the real, the real thing that needs to be communicated is happening outside of them. And welcome to the CCDA podcast. Today, Elizabeth Cronlin walks us through being a white ally in white spaces. This workshop audio is from the 2021 CCDA conference. We join them now in their conversation. Hi, welcome. You are at White Allies and White Spaces, being an ally when BIPOCs aren't around. If you did not mean to be in this workshop, too bad you're stuck. Just kidding. You can go out the door, find someone in a red shirt, and they will help you uh, find where you would like to go. But you could also consider that, you know, maybe God ordained your steps and you're here for a reason, right? <laughs> I'm Elizabeth Cronland. Uh, I'm from Orlando, Florida. I work in congregational ministry at Summit Church, which is an interdenominational church. It is predominantly white, working on becoming more multi-ethnic. And so part of the reason why I created this workshop is out of just really wonderful people within my church and my community, just really wanting to be a better ally, but not knowing how. And also, they were surrendering to the reality that, you know, I don't really have a lot of BIPOC folks in my life. And so... I don't want to be that weird person like trying to befriend random people on the streets because that just makes you a creeper. Uh, but they really sincerely wanted to be helpful in dismantling racism. But they didn't really know how to do that when they were not in spaces where BIPOC folks usually are, that they don't have them in their lives. And so I created this to hopefully help, right? And so our objectives for today for you guys are going to be... We're going to identify and assess white spaces. We're going to define them so you know what they are. Hopefully gain tools to navigate conflict and then disrupt racism in those spaces. And I mean, I get it. Being a white ally is not easy. Okay. It can be difficult to know when, where, when and where, basically. You as a white ally can be helpful in disrupting um, racism. And I mean, white spaces, folks. One of the most important reasons why I say white spaces is an important place for you guys to disrupt racism or for my BIPOC folks here on behalf of their white friends that they want to talk to later. The reason why white spaces for white allies is a really great space to be is because BIPOC folks aren't there, right? Mm -hmm. There's no one to speak for BIPOCs and not necessarily that you should co-opt their stories or their voices, but you can identify, call out, and lovingly potentially help people understand when racism is happening in spaces where BIPOC folks aren't, okay? And so that's really important because ideas and decisions and worldviews are created in these spaces, right? And so if you are able to add your voice into a place where you influence, you could really change the trajectory of people that you're connected to, who love you, who care about you, and who are influenced by your perspective, right? So that is why it's so important. And I'm so glad and kind of overwhelmed that there are so many people in this room. <laughs> All right. So identifying white spaces, identifying racism, and then navigating potential conflict. That's what we're going to go through, right? Okay. So what is a white space? What do you guys think it is? I know some of you may have looked at the worksheet and I won't. It's okay. What, what would you consider a white space? I do have treats if that entices you. A space where all the leaders are white, or most. 
Anybody else? Yeah, a space where there aren't BIPOCs, right? Yeah. So a space that is all white. I mean, this could be your home. It could be your church. Basically, a white space is a place where white majority culture defines the behaviors, the protocols, and the power. Whose way of living, thinking, making decisions kind of imbues that space, right? And so there can definitely be box in the room. But if the rules are set to kind of white majority culture, it's a white space, right? And so many BIPOCs have to navigate these spaces. And as white allies, which I'm hoping you all are or aspire to be, paying attention to these realities can be very, very helpful, right? Because a lot of times what's really hard about being a white ally is you're not always prepared for racism when it appears in white spaces, right? You're not sure how to engage. I mean, we prepare for like natural disasters, right? We do fire drills. We, I mean, I'm, a, I'm from Florida, so we have all sorts of hurricane supplies, right? We get ready for potential conflicts or potential issues, right? We prepare in all sorts of other ways. And I promise you that your BIPOC friends, like we have kind of thought through all the scenarios of the spaces where we might not feel safe or welcome. And so for y'all, this is to help you prepare and think very critically about your spaces and places of influence so that you do feel prepared. I'm not saying be prepared so you can, you know, completely like destroy your friends when they want to like debate things, but so that you don't get caught off guard and feel steamrolled, right? Because one of the things about that is it shuts down relationship and we don't want to do that, right? So white spaces. How about white spaces that influence you? What does your bookshelf look like? Who are you listening to in your podcasts? Is this conference the only place where you're getting to hear from theologians, pastors, and preachers, and speakers of color? I'm not saying, you know, throw out N.T. Wright. Like, no, keep him. We like him. But maybe, just maybe, hit the IVP bookstore and start you know, building that shelf for yourself. Start being influenced by the voices and perspectives of people of color. And I mean, CCDA is a really good vetting source, right? So if IVP and CCDA are telling you like, hey, these people have solid theology and really good perspectives, this may be a good place for you to start to build that uh, influence for yourself where you can be influenced by and flexible in those areas, right? And so we are going to do a little bit of white space mapping on your worksheet, right? There is that identify space, okay? And if you have a pen, definitely write it down, or you can just kind of think through this, right? So what are the all-white spaces in my life, okay? It doesn't have to be, like, not every white space uh, has only white people, like we brought up. Not every white space is a white space at all times, Right? think about that. Sometimes when certain people enter and leave a room, the power dynamics change and that room becomes a very different space, right? Like anywhere where two or more believers come together, like that's the church. That space is transformed just by the people inside of it. And that's the same here. When power dynamics change within a space, a space can change from a white space to a different kind of space. And also not every white space is inherently bad. Please don't hear that. Um, And not Every white space is a physical space or venue. 
I mean, your bookshelf is a physical space, but I'm talking more about your mind, your heart, the things that you're listening to, like what are the things that influence you? So let's take a couple minutes and just kind of think through where are your white spaces where you do life? I'll give you guys a couple minutes here. And so as you guys are thinking, this whole process on this worksheet is basically us working through these questions up here. What are the all-white spaces in my life or just white spaces? doesn't have to be all white folks to be a white space. Who are the people in these spaces and how am I connected to them? We want to look through a lot of this in a relational, influential uh, lens. Have people in these spaces expressed racist, idea, racist ideas and beliefs? And what were they? Not just the beliefs, but maybe the behaviors as well, right? And then what can I do? That's the real question, right? What can I do? All right, you'll have more time with this worksheet because I'm not going to take them back. Don't worry. You can bring them home with you. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to define what's racist. And you're like, hey, I'm at CCDA. <laughs> Keep going. But just follow me here, right? So we usually think about when we use the term racist, some folks in white spaces get really, really touchy about it because they hear not, hey, you said something that was racist. They hear you are racist, Right. And when they hear the term racist, we know that racist means bad. So you're telling them you are bad, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's not what we want to communicate. I mean, maybe we do, but that's probably not the best posture for a Christian. Um, we want to communicate that the thing that happened, the behavior that we observed, the things that was said was racist. And so instead of just getting stuck on racist, I think that... Um, Ibram Kendi um, uses these two terms, racist and anti-racist. Uh, and so racist is supporting a racist policy through actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. And then anti-racist is supporting an anti-racist policy through actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. And so the opposite of racist is not not racist. Although you hear that a lot, right? I'm not racist. And then you're just like, red flag, maybe you are. Uh, but... <laughs> The opposite, because racism and race, like racism is active, right? And so it's how you behave, how you are thinking, what you are doing, what you are saying. And your thoughts, your behaviors, they can change, right? If we believe that you are stuck being racist forever, then why do we even bother, right? But we believe in transformation. We are people of transformation. And so I have got to believe that people be, can be transformed, right? And so kind of looking at things through this lens, we are looking at behaviors, actions. Instead of saying, you are racist, you are saying, hey, when you made that joke about chinks, that was racist. That joke is racist. They may recoil. They usually do. But you are not saying that you are a bad person. You're saying that behavior was not cool. It made me uncomfortable and you're connected to me, right? And then anti-racist, the reason why it's important that just not racist is not enough is because neutral is basically complicit, mm -hmm. right? And I'm guessing that if some of you are here because you felt shut down in some of these spaces and not sure what to do, and you felt like through that fear or through that kind of deer in headlights moment where you were doing really quick relational math, you didn't act, and you may have felt like, oh, my gosh, am I complicit, right? I don't want you to feel that way, right? And so anti-racist would be specifically supporting, taking action that is clearly and distinctly 
anti-racist, wanting to take a posture of supporting of the things that dismantle racism, because it's not a static thing, right? All right. Can, okay, here's another thing. So policies, any sort of rules, right? They're often given by authorities, but not always. Um, those that may govern a space or an organization, right? And sometimes it's really easy to tell where something falls, but not always, right? Whether it's racist or it's not, like, what's the intent? What's the impact, right? Can you guys think of something that maybe recently or in recent history, you know, that was well-intentioned as a policy, but actually turned out to be racist? Anybody? Can you think of anything? The war on drugs. Yes, yes, indeed. If you're not sure if something is racist when it comes to being a policy or even like organizational policy, the intent is not enough, right? Good intentions are not enough when we're people of God and we want to do better, right? We have to look at the actual impact. Mm -hmm. So we can use all the right words and say all the right things, but if the impact does not match the intent, we've missed something, right? Mm -hmm. Someone whose voice needed to be in the room was not, or someone wasn't there to point out that someone wasn't there. Someone who will hopefully be you one day. Let's see. How about this? What's a racist idea or belief that was part of your upbringing? Just take a moment. And if you're willing to share, I'd, I'd love to, to hear from y'all. Yes. That black boys are dangerous and I shouldn't date them. Yeah. Anybody else? It's not safe to go downtown. Okay. So hand here and a hand here. Yeah, so you are where you are because, yeah, you didn't work hard enough. Kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Poverty is a result of laziness. Oh, that poverty is a result of laziness. So kind of people who maybe are not uh, familiar or native English speakers, something would come out not quite the way they might want or maybe heard a different way. Yeah, that can be racist, especially if people make fun of it, right? Okay, and one last one. Right, right. And so that's, that's very common in immigrant communities coming in, that, that first generation of children after the immigrant parents. There's a, real, there's a lot of tension where we came here with nothing. Why can't others do the same? Kind of that bootstrap idea, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And I bring this up. Because the reality is, is that all of us have been shaped and formed by racist ideas, whether they were explicit, like don't date black boys or kind of implicit, right? Don't go downtown, right? And that matters, right? And I want you guys to connect to that reality because when we are engaging with folks who may be displaying racist behaviors or thoughts and ideas, we are all there. We're all influenced by these things. And so... As difficult as it can be at times, especially when the racism like meter is way high, we have to remember that we're not perfect in this either, right? And that's the wonderful thing about being racist versus anti-racist. Being anti-racist means that your job is never done. You've never arrived, right? You have to keep working at it. Um, and I'm Asian American, right? I'm an AAPI woman, and there is a ton of anti-blackness within the Asian American community. And we're not a monolith, but still... There's this belief that, you know, if you're on the lighter end of the spectrum, a lot of colorism, then you have better, you know, options, you're higher class, and this belief that those who are darker, you know, 
they're they're poor, they're not as good, and there are some very very explicit things that your your lolas, your grandmas would say to you like, oh, you can you can date a white person, but never date a black person, right? And there's even racism within the community as well. So how do we identify it, right? Identifying racism in white spaces. This is where our handy dandy pyramids will come in for you guys. We think that racism is going to be easy to identify, but honestly, nowadays it's not as easy um, as you might think, uh, unless you're in it all the time, constantly aware of it and kind of looking to see where you can disrupt things, right? If you're not steeped in wondering about equity and things like that, you, you could really miss some things, that intent and impact gap may exist in your spaces and you might not realize it because you haven't been paying attention because you haven't had someone draw your attention to it yet, right? And so this is kind of the pyramid of white supremacy. Like, it always escalates. Like, we think about genocide and, you know, murder and calls for violence from the KKK and things like that, right? These are, this is kind of the scale where everything from normalization, the kind of pull yourself up by your bootstrap stuff, the don't go downtown, oh, that's a really shady neighborhood. I want to live in a nice neighborhood with my kids going to a nice school. You know, these are all things that we've normalized. But there's also indifference, right? Uh, Things like, I don't see color. Well, then you don't see me, right? So I don't see color. Things like that where it's not that big a deal, right? Like, does this really affect my everyday? As a white person, it might not but it definitely affects your soul. So here's the thing. Aversive racism, that's what you're probably going to meet a lot of. So aversive racism is one of the things that you will very likely encounter in white spaces, right? So uh, Robin D'Angelo and White Fragility, and I know she's problematic uh, for my BIPOC friends in the room, uh, says that it is a manifestation of racism that well-intentioned people who see themselves as educated and progressive are more likely to exhibit. It exists under the surface of consciousness because it conflicts with consciously held beliefs of racial equity and justice. Right? Like, I'm not racist. I voted for Obama. Like, (laughs) all that kind of stuff, right? (laughs) And this is really frustrating for BIPOC folks, right? Because we know that Folks who tend to have more progressive ideas about equity and justice, like they're, they're for us, they want our voices. But if you look at the numbers, they are the least likely to live in integrated neighborhoods. They are the most segregated. They are the most likely to take their children like, and move them into a better school district and things like that. So this is that disconnection of like ideas and lived reality, right? Orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. We, are, we have great ideas. We have good ideas godly, wonderful, pure ideas, but we're not going to live it. And so this aversive racism allows this kind of cognitive dissonance to exist, right? And so the other scary triangle that you have. (laughs) So there's overt racism, white supremacy. Like this is the stuff that anybody can call out and, and we get it, right? January 6th, right? Like I mean, maybe not, but (laughs) uh, neo-Nazis, KKK, all of these things. But underneath the obvious stuff, right, we've got covert uh, white supremacy. So this is kind of the aversive racism, the stuff that you don't really 
you can't always pinpoint. I think it's getting easier now because there's so much more on social media. You're seeing things in the news. You're seeing things from your friends, like all sorts of stuff. Um, but the further down you go, the harder it is to pinpoint whether or not it's racist sometimes, right? Because we're, we're seeing more things where, I think it's on their Confederate flags, like that's slowly making its way up into overt supremacy, right? Where BIPOC folks were like, we told you. Uh, but some people don't see it there yet. And part of this also is that policies have changed. Like Sing Chan Ra talked about, you know, things may change, like racism, slavery, all of those things. Like the narrative never changed. So, yeah. The Civil Rights Acts came through, and all of a sudden, being openly racist was no longer okay, right? But you can say things like, don't blame me, I never owned slaves. You can say things like, you know, it's just a joke. When you dismiss the potential harm and hurt that may be happening to a BIPOC person through it, like, those are all different kind of socially acceptable. Like, those are excuses that people will accept sometimes. They shouldn't, but they do, right? And so these are topics, you know, if you're looking through these and some of these you're not familiar with, you got it on your sheet. I challenge you, if there's something on that sheet, like circle it, make a note of it. Like that's your spiritual battlefield right now. Figuring out what that thing is, getting more information about it, making yourself more aware and informed without burdening your BIPOC friends to teach you. Hi, I'm Lorenzo. What I love about CCDA is being connected to so many amazing leaders across the country. Welcome to the CCDA podcast. Is anyone willing to share something that they're like, oh, oh, apparently that's racist. It's okay. We're not going to judge you. It's only recording. There's no video in the room. Yes. Expecting TLC to teach Yeah. Expecting BIPOC folks to teach you. Yeah. So... I can break this down just a little bit because I think that's a super common one, right? And so right now, like I said, there's so much information out there, right? You are just one very carefully worded Google search away from a wealth of information that's helpful and potentially, you know, a less carefully (laughs) worded Google search away from your doom. But, (laughs) But the reason why, you know, you don't want to go directly to your BIPOC friends is there aren't a ton of us around in mostly white spaces and you can, you better believe that every white person is asking us. And so for you, this is the first time that you're asking. And like, we get that. I get it every time. Like another person comes up and is like, Hey, I just want to get coffee with you. And I'm like, I am set for coffee for the rest of my life. I love you. Um, I'm going to point you over to Latasha Morrison's like organization for a little bit. Like give me a break. But the reason why is, is that idea of emotional labor you are asking someone that you know and you trust that you understand that they have an experience that is of value to you. And like, that's, that's not missed sometimes, but when a lot of people are asking that, uh, it becomes, it becomes laborious. It's tedious. But also when you're asking people to share from their experience, especially when it involves racism, it's painful, right? And so even if it's a small story here or there, you're asking them to share some of their trauma with you. And so if you have a very close relationship with somebody and you've heard them speak about experiences in their lives, then that might be a place where you can have conversations about that. But if you've never heard one of your BIPOC friends tell you about an experience of racism, 
I probably wouldn't go ask them, be like, hey, has racist stuff happened to you? <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I just be like, we're not really friends. Uh, no, but because a lot of people are going to be asking their friends, especially over the last two years, right? The number of things being asked of people of color, especially like women of color, you know, to do a lot of the work. And right now there's just so much available. And y'all here at CCDA, like that's a big step that you guys are taking, right? You have a wealth of knowledge and resources at your fingertips uh, to start to do the work. And so if you're not sure if a BIPOC person is you know, willing to talk to you, if you're not sure, the answer is probably no. I'm just going to put that out there. This is for my BIPOC friends. If someone has offered it to you, receive it graciously. If someone is you know, specifically in the work of DEI or you know, dismantling racism, pay them for their work. Right. Because it is work and it is labor and it's a type of expertise that matters. Right. Like you guys paid to get to this conference because this information matters. That lived experience that's embodied within the CCDA membership and leaders. Oh, it's so valuable. Right. And so place that value on the BIPOC folks in your life and that you have access to if you are hoping to kind of access that information from them. But also be aware, if someone says no, it's not because they don't like you. It's because they're probably really tired, right? And, and so I'm not saying you should never talk to your BIPOC friends about racism or anything like that. But I am saying, please be very careful. Like, we're tired and we're hurting. Um, and I'll also add on that, um, so many people like to send me videos of racist things. And I'm like, stop traumatizing me in my DMs. Um, but, yeah, but believe me, this happens so often, and it's out of a place of, like, I'm with you, but it's also, like, you're hurting me, <laughs> please stop, right? So just be very, very careful if there's something you can do, especially on social media feeds, please don't post the videos to your feeds. If you have BIPOC friends, please don't post it to your feeds. You can post a link to a video, just don't post the video itself. That's just pro tip on how to care for your BIPOC friends because folks get traumatized and re-traumatized through these images, even if it's not, you know, directly involving their, you know, their people group. Like when stuff is happening with my Latinx friends, like I feel that. My family is a family of immigrants, you know? And so just, just be careful, be cautious. When you are intellectually piqued and kind of interested, stop and think, is there pain on the other end of this equation? Because you're kind of cognitive curiosity that's coming out of a good place. You're wanting to better, better yourself. What is the cost on the other end, right? So I'm going to step off soapbox. We're going to talk about the backstage and the front stage, right? So this is kind of talking about how white folks kind of operate. So this is called, comes from Dr. Leslie Pika's Two-Faced Racism, Whites in the Backstage and Front Stage. So in the front stage, this is where BIPOC folks may be, right? And racist statements are not okay here. And any race talk should be avoided in those spaces, right? But they may be okay with these conversations in the backstage where only white people will hear them. And so bottom line, this kind of um, dichotomy means that there is a belief that there's an appropriate place for racism, right? White spaces, specifically, where the rules apparently feel different to others, that there's some sort of kinship in this place that protects them. Um, 
And we'll talk about how to engage this specifically. But if you are not okay with these things, please make sure other people know it, right? Mm -hmm. Because if someone is saying racist things without pause in a space where you are, they believe that you are in with them, Mm -hmm. right? And so for you to say nothing, or even just, uh, I'm a really big fan of a strong facial reaction, like, right? Anything to show your dissent, right? Anything to show I'm not okay with that, your body language. I mean, get up out of the room if you can, right? Whatever, whatever it is that you can do to say, no, not okay, disrupts this idea that there's a place where this is okay, right? Okay. Rolls in the backstage conversation. I'm, I'm going to make you guys dig deep here, right? As I go through these. Have you ever been in one of these positions? Okay. So the protagonist, we're treating this like a a fictional story, although it's a very real reality. So protagonist, the one who initiates the racist act. This is the terrible joke teller. This is your, you know, uncomfortable cousin at Thanksgiving, all the saying, all the things that you don't want to hear, right? Or that are not okay. The cheerleaders, those who encourage through laughter or agreement. I'm going to tell you, those are sometimes the most painful folks to interact with as a BIPOC person when you are in a white space where BIPOC folks are around. If someone makes a racist joke and everyone seems okay with it, you are no longer in a space that is safe. All stop. Then spectators, those who stand in silence. And like, we have no idea. Are they okay with it? Are they not? I mean, silence is complicit. And so whether you say it with your face or you say it with your voice, in some way, don't allow people to believe that you're complicit in racist behaviors and ideas and jokes, right? And then the dissenter, one who objects. And this is, this is rare. It's hard. When you're in a space where you have relationship and kinship and all of those things, it costs you to go against what's expected, right? And that's the fear, right? The fear that if I speak up in this time, I will be rejected. If I speak up here, I will get steamrolled. I don't know what to expect, right? And so that's why this is rare because we're all talking, we're talking in terms of relationship here in these spaces where you do life, you have relationships and people may be engaging in this behavior and you don't want to. So how do we, how do we deal with this, right? So I want you guys to kind of think about this, try and pull a scenario into your mind. Have any of you experienced this? Have any of you been in one of these roles? If you've been the protagonist, like, If you share, you're really, really brave, and let's be very kind. Uh, But have you ever been in one of the other roles before? You just hold that and think about it. Have you ever heard a backstage conversation? Think back. Has there ever been a time where someone clearly thought it was okay to make some sort of racist joke, or they said something that was just not right? Yes. I feel like Enneagram is something that everyone keeps tossing out there. Um, I being an Enneagram 2-3, like, I find myself often being the, the harmonizer in a room and, the, and, like, in a party or something like that. So mm-hmm. if there was ever a backstage conversation, to be the dissenter is to kill, like, to kill the room. And, mm-hmm. and so in, I think in my own self-discovery, I've realized those spaces where I've just kind of 
ha, and then walked away <laughs> than, than actually going against it because it's that people-pleasing side that I think happens in a lot of white spaces. Yeah. And with family, with friends, and, um, and, it's, and since, beco- since becoming... Um, yeah, uh, cl- clergy. I feel like I've had a more a, a harder conviction of like feeling like okay, it has to stop. Like you know, right? Anyway. Yeah. But I think that the people pleasing thing is a very common. Absolutely. And so people pleasing, right? You want to, you want the space to be harmonious. And in that moment when a racist attitude or behavior is displayed, there's tension, and we don't like that. Sometimes, if we aren't used to engaging discomfort, we read discomfort as danger, mm-hmm. right? And so if, if you are not prepared, if you haven't thought about it, if you encounter it, you don't think to encounter it in a space and it happens, it'll hit you like a ton of bricks. And it will feel like danger because you know it's wrong and you feel that working of the Holy Spirit, just getting your, your blood pumping right. But then all that, you know, your personality, your relationships, society, whatever it may be, you don't know what to do, right? And you're conflicted. And so... Yes. Some people laugh when they're nervous. I'm a nervous laughter. I kind of, it's so obvious that I'm nervous when I laugh, though. I can't, I'm a terrible actress. Um, But the unfortunate thing about that is nervous laughter sometimes reads as just laughter. And that's not what you want to do, right? So if a BIPOC person happens to be within your purview or nearby, happens to overhear a conversation, which has happened to me, right? There was definitely real laughter, but there was also nervous laughter because they didn't know what to do with the statement that was made. And one of them saw me and was just like, oh, no. Um, But yeah, nervous laughter doesn't always read as nervous laughter to the BIPOC person being affected by the violence of the words. And so that may be your default. It's my default too, right? I have to fight really, really hard that when I'm nervous, that I don't accidentally encourage terrible behavior through my laughter because I don't know what to do with it. I'm still working on it. A lot of these conversations are happening and it's not the obvious, right? It's not obvious stuff. Um, It's usually the things that you're not really sure what to do with. Like, you know it's not right, but the other people in the room may not realize that and you're dealing with that tension, right? Um, So we're going to get to that in just a little bit. I saw one more hand. Yes. Yeah, so there definitely, you know, over time, like, thoughts and ideas have changed about social interaction. So there is a time when as long as you're not participating, like, that's okay. You've done the right thing. But I think we've hit a spot in human history in the arc of justice and the arc of, like, humanity where just standing by is not okay anymore. It's not enough, right? Uh, because, yeah, and it is a growth thing. And then I've been Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. So sometimes the role, your role, can change over time as you grow and as you experience, as you experiment, and all the stuff we're going to talk about today. Like, you're not going to get it perfect. Like, if you think coming to this workshop or going to CCDA is going to set you up to perfectly interact with every other human in the world, like, I am so sorry, my friends. (laughs) 
I, I, I mean, we had some really great psychologists and like therapists on stage earlier. I mean, <laughs> they might be able to help you out, but you're going to mess up. That's the other bit of it. The fear of messing up, right? You got you to gotta give that up. You really do. Because God didn't make you to perform perfectly. He just, he made you perfectly, right? But sin has created a situation in the world that we live in where our actions and our thoughts, we're not in perfect communication with one another and God now, right? And so we have to be more careful about what we do and how we do it. Um, But yeah, we're going to mess up. And sometimes messing up is the best teacher ever. You never forget like when you've messed up, right? (laughs) So I want you guys to kind of look back at your worksheet and it says assess. I want you guys to choose a space that you may have listed or maybe one that you're thinking about now. I want you to list it and then think about the observed behaviors behaviors or attitudes that you are associating with that space. Something that you've definitely seen, something that you think you may have seen or experienced. Like go ahead and take take a moment to kind of think about that right now. And then as you're finishing that part up, go ahead and look down to the next spot where it says my influence in the space that you chose. What is your role? Do you have a legitimate title of some sort? Is it a, an influential type of relationship there? If you have a role or can describe your role, go ahead and list it there. And then list maybe a couple of people within that space. It can be general, like coworkers, or it can be very specific. You may have thought of a specific person when we started looking at those behaviors. If, if that's one of those uh, moments that you had, go ahead and list that person. But also list other people who will be in the space with you. Now, after you've done that, ask yourself, am I confident in influencing others in this space? Not just when it comes to, you know, dealing with racism in general. Are you capable of influencing people in this space? Because if you're capable of influencing someone in this space on other things, you have some level of influence when it comes to racism. Whether or not the fear is telling you you don't, you do. If you have relationship, you have influence. And so I just want to affirm that in you. But your level of confidence is the thing that I want you to gauge. Like, how confident are you? And if you are not confident, go ahead and figure out, you know, you can list why if you need to think about it. Like I said, I'm not going to take these from you. You get to take this home with you. Um, But that's something that you should assess, right? Why do do I not feel confident in a space where I do life? All right. What's your goal? Does anybody have any thoughts about this? Like, what's your goal? When you're engaging others in white spaces, when stuff like this is going down, what is your goal? I know you're probably looking at the slides and you're like, I know the answer, but mm-hmm. just think about it. Maybe before you walked in, what did you think your goal was when dealing with other white folks in white spaces? You can be honest. Safe space. Remember, no, no video cameras, just a recorder. So you want to be genuine. When it comes to engaging other white folks... What do, you, what do you want to do? When you're trying to figure out how you're going to disrupt a space, what do you want the outcome to be? Or what do you imagine it will be? Yeah, so engaging with family members, like that, that's, a, that's something I hear a lot about, especially in these times there's really great division and people don't agree on basic facts anymore. And so how to navigate conflict in your own family so that it doesn't devolve into just fighting, right? Anybody else? I saw it. I saw a hand. Saw this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure how to say this, but I think it's kind of to create a safer space for people of color to come into. So if mm-hmm. I've kind of helped illuminate or break down some of the things that would make it an uncomfortable space to come into, that 
Yeah, so to make to make the space a safer space for BIPOC folks in the future, that's a good goal. And what if yeah. prepare for their voice? And prepare so for their voice. Yeah. How about folks? I know some some folks may be from rural areas where you can count like all the BIPOC folks in your county on like one hand, right? Mm-hmm. What if it's a space where BIPOC folks will never come into? What is your goal there? In the back. To change the narrative, to change the mindsets. To show them this is something that God cares about. Gold star. I don't have gold stars. I have snacks, but you can have them later. Um, and to educate, right? Okay. To also change the systems. Yeah, to change the systems. Voting. Yes, they're voting. <laughs> and like I said earlier, these spaces, you know, these could be homes, these could be communities, these could be churches, these could be schools, it may be your place of work. People are forming ideas about the world around them in the spaces where they interact with others. It's not, I mean, the news has a lot of influence on folks, but more than anything, those who you're in relationship, you care very much about what they think about you and what they think about the world. And so even if this is a space or you're going back to a space where BIPOC folks may never come, or at least not anytime soon. You can help to create a reality where people are making decisions about BIPOC folks in a way, you know, where they see them as God sees them, right? And also, you know, like you said, people are voting. In spaces where there are no black folks, where there are no Asian folks, where there are no Latinx folks, there are certain issues that make it on the ballot that very much affect those communities. And so if it doesn't matter to white folks, they might not talk about it ever. And so they'll just bypass that and vote for the one thing that they care about, you know? But as you start to become a kingdom citizen, you have to consider all the other members of God's kingdom too, right? And so that's hard. So what's your goal? The goal is connection. And like that sometimes feels very, very dissatisfying because you're like, oh, I just just want to destroy them with facts and figures, right? I've learned so much. But here's the thing. Very few people have actually been, like, transformed by someone else shaming them. Right? Very few people have ever seen, like, you know, basically it's a an essay on a Facebook wall when you're just like, you could have just said you're racist, didn't need an essay. Like, no one's been like, huh, good point. Right? <laughs> when the attack is on you. Right? Have you ever experienced a time where someone said something to you that just shamed you to your core, but they didn't even realize it? Have you felt that? Right? Remember how we said all of us have to deal with racist, you know, influences and ideas and that we are all shaped and formed by them. None of us are free of it. These folks are too. And these are your friends. These are your families. These are your coworkers. And flat out, these are bearers of God's image, Right? As repugnant as they may feel in the moment, they still carry God's image, right? Like, Jesus fed Judas, right? He gave him a whole meal, washed his feet. He still carried his father's image, right? And it's hard. Like, there are times when someone says something, I'm like, "Mm, not going to deal with that. Mm -mm, No way. Not today. But I'll challenge myself to be ready next time. We'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hello, I'm Paul Miles, president and CEO of We Raise Foundation. We Raise invests in people and organizations that serve at the intersection of poverty, violence, and inequality. We start by acknowledging that change begins with we. We are in this together. 
And it's going to take our love and our compassion and dedication to solve the problems facing communities today. We invite you to be part of that with us and encourage you to visit WeRaise.org to find out how you can become involved and be a partner with WeRaise. As you're looking here, do you see a space where you go? If you're like an Enneagram person, you're just like, ooh, Enneagram 8, Enneagram 2. Just kind of looking here. So these up here, you know, competing. I'm going to win. You're going to lose. You're going to feel shamed. You're going to like go from red to blue. You're going to just, yeah, no, never, never wins. Like nobody wins in that situation because you might win the argument, but you've just lost a relationship. And I'm going to, I'm going to put this out, out there and some people get really upset when I say this. Not every fight is worth fighting in the moment because to be honest, there are some folks who just want to fight. And if your goal is connection, then you guys don't have the same goal. And if you can't convince them that connection is the thing that they want, that you want, and they're willing to work towards, you're just hurting yourself, right? And like I said, you are part of God's creation. You bear the Imago Day too. Don't allow others to harm you if the reality is all they want to do is harm you, right? And so maybe you recoup and hope that something you may have said impacted them and try another time. But you do not have to engage every single time a racist thing happens. But if you find yourself opting out over and over and over again, I would explore that a little bit more, right? Let's see. So these are all the different ways, right? And what we're kind of hoping for is this middle ground, compromising. I win some, you win some. And so what that means is when we're connecting, I learn about you and you learn about me, right? We both give in this situation, and we both receive in this situation. Nobody wins necessarily, right? But we connect. All right. You've probably seen these on the internet. So the four horsemen of, un, or of um, the four horsemen of, commu- like, terrible communication, basically. These are unhealthy but very common responses to conflict, Right? The first one is criticism, verbally attacking someone, their personality, or their character, right? This is kind of, this is what happens when, you know, you say, you're racist. I am attacking your personality or your character. At least that's what they're hearing, right? Oh, you, you did this or you voted for this person. Oh, you're, you're not even Christian, right? Or, oh, I can't believe you did that with your kid. Like, you, you don't, like hover over them at all times, oh, you're a terrible parent. You put a leash on your kid, what's wrong with you, right? I'm talking about those, like, not like actual leash, but like, you know, the little ones that kids have on the, in the airport. The other one, contempt. And so this is attacking the sense of self uh, with the intention to insult or psychologically abuse. So instead of openly saying, you're a terrible person, you're just like, hmm, right. It's the attitude in which you address them. Like, I can't even stand those people. Those people. The kind of generalizing with the exact uh, intent to pull that person into it, right? Defensiveness. I like, this is the whataboutism, where it's like, I want to talk about racism. Well, what about this? What about what's happening in Russia? What about what's happening over here? Look at this. Look at this. Don't make me talk about racism. (laughs) Right? And then the other one is stonewalling. Like, this is a little bit of gaslighting, too, where um, a person will 
tone police you, basically. I'm just going to call it what it is. This is tone policing. I don't like the way that you said this. You shouldn't talk about it. This is too uncomfortable. I can't believe you would bring that up. Why can't you make this more palatable for me? Right? So these are some things. Just kind of think about this. Has, is your natural conflict style, could it potentially lead you to one of these? Because you need to know your conflict style. Because you're not going to always walk into a, a space and be like, I smell the conflict coming. It always surprises us, usually. But if you're thinking through, you'll be more prepared, right? So knowing how you engage in conflict is going to help you from getting pulled into an argument where there is no winner and everyone feels terrible and you actually push someone away, right? Because when we're connecting, trying to understand why somebody feels the way that they do, you get to see their humanity and you might actually learn something very important about why they feel the way that they do, right? So here's, here are some tips. Um, so when you're engaging... Focus on words and actions. As much as you're starting to feel like this person is just driving me nuts, they're a terrible person, focus, focus, focus. Actions and behaviors. Actions and behaviors can be easily changed, and it is not an attack on the character of the person, right? We are, we are more than our actions and behaviors, but our character kind of breathes out t- through them, and we can all be changed, right, over time. Uh, Follow up with an I statement if needed. If someone just is really struggling with the fact that you called out a behavior, try an I statement. And then this is the really important part. De-escalate by affirming behavior when you refocus, then refocus on the behavior, right? And then aim to understand the beliefs. So you're potentially going to be diffusing a bomb of white fragility. It's an explosion, right? That kind of, I think, uh, is it Daniel Hill talks about white rage? I probably said the wrong person. But to connect, you have to make it clear that you're not attacking their character because that's common, right? But we're God's people. We're not common. We're extraordinary. And so we need folks to know we're not attacking their character. And so it can be like this. So engaging, focusing on words. That's not okay. That joke isn't okay. And, you know, you can say, like, that phrase isn't okay to say. If they're just like, wait a second, what? Are you saying that I'm racist? You can say, when you said that, I felt this way. Because I don't really think that the word or phrase that you said is okay, right? Um, And you can even potentially put in a story of your own. Just be like, hey, you know, making that kind of joke makes me very uncomfortable because I do have friends in that type of situation. Or I've met folks who... You know, this affects them in a very real way. And so it it just makes me a little bit uncomfortable, right? And then de-escalate. You have to affirm others. They want to know that they've been heard and not just dismissed, right? That's the hard part. Even when they're saying something offensive, like, you want to affirm that you've at least heard them, right? Um, And so you can say, I can tell you're upset talking about this. I'm not trying to say you're a bad person. Sometimes they're still not going to hear it at this point, you know, until you say this. Um, I'm trying to understand what you believe better since we seem to disagree, right? Um, If they attack you, reword and repeat, just like with children, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Say it another way, right? Where it's, you can even go further, where it's just like, you're someone that I love and respect. And I'm just surprised that you feel this way. And I want to understand better. You know, maybe you were raised together. Like, 
hey, we're friends. We're friends for a reason. I just want to understand. Because we clearly, we don't see eye to eye on this, and I really just want to understand, right? Um, If you start to get hot and bothered and really angry in this process, which can happen, right? We're not going to do this perfectly. You can disengage disengage and try again at another time, right? Um, Sometimes you can say, hey, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. Um, It's not that you did anything wrong. I just feel like you maybe don't understand me. Can we try having this conversation another time? I think it's important and I want to understand. You've put yourself out there being vulnerable. I want to understand you. I'm clearly not understanding. Can we try this again? You're worth coming back to understand, right? The fact that you've said you've had value, I care about what you think, I want to know more. That's very important, right? Okay. And so... Discussion times, friends. I'd love for you guys to kind of break up for maybe a couple minutes here. Um, And I want you guys to think through your worksheet, maybe talk to one another. Where have you avoided taking anti-racist action in the white spaces you have access to? And what has held you back? The worksheet might be able to help you. Maybe discussing with others might help. I'm going to give you guys a couple minutes to do that. I'm going to walk around and you guys can grab snacks. What do you guys come up with? Um, what are what are some things that may have held you back if you're if you're willing to share? Maybe two or three folks right there. Yeah. So being someone who's not in a position of power in the room, yeah, that is it's very difficult to navigate, definitely, um, especially when there's an established power structure, right? If you're in an official space or place, and maybe you're entry level or associate level, and it's your boss. <laughs> dun dun dun. That's the role for HR um, right there. Wow, so you're a victim advocate, I'm doing this for the recording, and you work with prosecutors, so you're both trying to be a voice for those you advocate for, but also influence the mostly white prosecutors and people who will make decisions about folks who are primarily BIPOC and are victims, right? Yeah, and and it is very, very hard when you're working within a very clear power structure, especially one with very clear, you know, protocols and statutes and things like that. Um, when it comes to things like that, finding another ally is probably the best thing to do. Is there anybody else within this space who maybe thinks like me, I know they do, or they seem inclined, we maybe have some things in common. Could I have a conversation with that person? And maybe we can do this together. I know women do this a lot in the workplace, right? We kind of signal boost for each other, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is something that you can do in this space too where maybe someone said something and you saw that face of discomfort on somebody else, you're like, ooh, ally. Like, maybe make a friend there and see, like, hey, I noticed that you felt uncomfortable there, too. Have you felt that way before? I I know that I have. Do you think you'd want to, like, do this with me, (laughs) you know? And invite someone else into this process. There, on the end. I'm a pastor at a mostly white church, Mm -hmm. so... Yeah, so you're a pastor at a predominantly white church. Am I hearing that right? And knowing how much to say, when to say it, when you're saying too much or not enough. And that is that is real right now. That is extremely real right now. And so the best thing I can say is if you're going to say it, say it. Don't shy away from it. Because if you say it and you back off, you will lose the people that don't want to hear it and the people who are desperate to hear it. And you'll have the people in the middle who are waiting for you to make a decision. That's all who will be left. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care if I lose my job, but I also mm-hmm. don't want to lose people who need to take more than one hearing. 
Right. Yeah. And so the concern is, you know, I want I want to have the opportunity to tell folks who might be, you know, deterred by this. And some of it is in the way that you, you share this, right? If you have not laid the groundwork, like the, the very lexicon, when you say justice, do they hear justice? Mm-hmm. What are they hearing? Like define your terms and find your scripture, right? And there's, there's so many resources here. You've been hearing from really great speakers. If there are people that you are particularly concerned of, or concerned about, excuse me, um, you know as a pastor who has a lot of social influence within your congregation who may be on that spectrum of, I'm going to leave with my tithes and offerings. You need to be prepared to lose them, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, like, this matters too much to be, like, worried about money funding the vision. Like, God's going to provide, right? But you don't have to just come in like a wrecking ball. I got a couple of you. Um, A one-on-one, that relationship matters because that person can potentially influence a lot of other people who won't even get to work with you on that message. Because there are, I promise you, there are way more people who are curious and unsure in a congregation and in a space where you are than are completely opposed to the idea that everyone bears God's image, right? And so find the people who are influential and try to make them allies. If they are not, then it may be time for them to move on. But I wouldn't get stuck there because you have an entire congregation that you shepherd. And so it's a very difficult place that you're in. And it costs. All of this costs, absolutely, right? That's why we're afraid. That's why we worry. That's why you came here, right? You're worried about the cost. And I'm not going to minimize that. It costs, and it hurts, and it's hard, and it's tiring. And you will mess up. I mess up. We're all going to mess up. Thank goodness there's grace, right? Keep trying. Keep trying, and be earnest. If you mess up and you say something the wrong way, just be like, oh. I said that, and I, I feel like you didn't hear me right, and I'm so sorry, you know, and see if you can try again. If they don't want you to try again or they don't let you try again, then that is their choice, and you'll have to respect it, right? We have to treat everybody as if they have full agency, right, to choose. And so if they choose not to listen, you have to lean hard on God, and believe that the truth that you said is going to have an impact in some way. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be the next day. It may be five years from now. It may just stick like a splinter in their mind. But you said it. Let God take the rest of it. Right? All right. And this is the question I want you guys to take with you. And you'll, you can work through these things. Work through this worksheet if it's helpful. How will you begin to step into disrupting racism in the white spaces you have access to and influence in? This is what I want you guys to pray about if you're willing for the next week before you go to bed. Pray about this. Okay? So I'm going to open it up to Q&As. Uh, we've got a, about eight minutes. Anybody? In the back and then. Okay, so when, you've, when something happens and you want to show solidarity and care for your BIPOC friends, but you don't want to create a situation where it seems like you're asking for education and other things, right? You want them to know that you're for them. That's what I'm hearing. You want them to know that you connect and you care. And sometimes the best thing to say is, this is awful. I love you. Are you okay? Stop. Just stop. 
If they want to talk more, they will. If they're not ready, they won't. But they've heard it. I see that this is wrong. I know that it affects you. I'm here if, you're, if you need me. And if they don't need you, don't be offended. Mm-hmm. Like, you probably have more than one friend, right? Mm-hmm. You might have a counselor. I've got a counselor, right? But I, want you to, I don't want you to feel the pressure to convince people that you love that you love them. Less is more there. Your presence says so much more. Your willingness to show up and say, I know this is hard. Are you okay? And not need anything else, right? Absolutely. And so performative care hurts a lot more, right? It's, it's like emotional tourism, right? I want proximity to the excitement at the cost of your pain. And like she said, if you, if you care about this person, you should be checking in on them regularly, right? Like we, there's still trials happening. There are still bodies in the streets. There are still people living in terror, people who are having their rights taken away right now. And so if you have people in your life who are BIPOC, who may be affected by these things, try and see if you can allow other voices and influences to help you know when things are happening and also check in with your friends. Just check in with your friends. If you have if you have a relationship with somebody, I'm not saying that all of you have like token Asian friends. Although I, I seem to be that Asian friend for a lot of people. Um, and I'm an INTJ, like I told you. I only have like a small group of friends. Um, but be real in your relationships, right? And so you can't check in on every BIPOC person. Like we're gonna we're gonna know you're doing it to perform, right? If you are hoping that your actions and your words are showing a lot of people something about you and not about connection to a person, check yourself. That's performance. Kathy. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're just like, I'm sorry, Jesus is so perfect. Yeah. So have... You can pursue genuine relationships with BIPOC folks that you don't know, but make sure it's genuine and that your intentions are connection and relationship. There may be people in your spheres and the places where you do life where BIPOC folks clearly have similar interests. Start there, not the fact that they're BIPOC, right? So, yeah, so if you are a pastor or you work in uh, ministry and you... Um, have influence over a congregation or a group of folks. Like I'm in congregational ministry, so I have influence over like a congregation. Scripture is the most important thing that you can have in your pocket. Like that's the most important tool, right? And so when people are just like, oh no, social justice, you're just like, well, you know, Jesus. Um, And then uh, Kendi, like we, I I mentioned him and, you know, the definitions of racist versus anti-racist. His stamp from the beginning, it is not an easy read. It is a very difficult read. Um, There's a really great audio book. Take your time with that book if you do read it. Um, And How to Be an Anti-Racist as well is another really great resource. Um, Stamp from the beginning, it is, it's a history lesson. The parts of history that are only, you know, kind of shared in bits and pieces, he goes really deep into it, and it's a very difficult read, but it, it could be good for you if, you if you're willing to. So, yeah, maybe one more question. There you go. Centering. Let's talk about it. I'm going to try and do this super-duper quick. It is currently 2.45, so I know if you have a workshop in another end of the world that is this convention center, uh, you may need to leave. 
and I won't be offended, but let's talk about centering for a moment. You may have heard this term and you're not sure what it is, right? Centering is whose perspective and whose story is actually the one that matters, right? And so sometimes, um, I'll give an example, like maybe someone writes a blog, right? They went to a march, right? Black Lives Matter march. White person talking about their experience at a black march. The story is now about them when the real, the real thing that needs to be communicated is happening outside of them. And so when you are showing solidarity, when you're trying to teach, when you're trying to share stories for BIPOC folks or about BIPOC folks, let BIPOC folks be the ones to speak. Share their content. Don't recreate it with some hashtags. Like, just signal boost those creators instead, right? Um, I, I don't want to take too much of your time, so we're about a minute over. If you would like to chat for a little bit, I've got a few minutes afterwards. But thank you guys so much. Please review the workshop. And y'all are wonderful. I do still have snacks. And thank you for listening. Big thanks to Elizabeth Crumlin for leading us through being a white ally in white spaces and her expertise. Hello, I'm Paul Miles, president and CEO of We Raise Foundation. We Raise invests in people and organizations that serve at the intersection of poverty, violence, and inequality. We start by acknowledging that change begins with we. We are in this together. And it's going to take our love and our compassion and dedication to solve the problems facing communities today. We invite you to be part of that with us and encourage you to visit weraise.org to find out how you can become involved and be a partner with We Raise. Thank you for listening to the CCDA podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is produced by Dan Portnoy in association with Scott Overbeck.